0: It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com/insighthour. Now well, the Dharma is so beautiful because it's like
1: everything feeds into everything else. And we can really begin to be leading our life with this kind of integration. You know, it's Dharma practice is not it's not a hobby, you know, that we do occasionally. It's really how we're living our life. I think the main question that really arises for people is how can we carry the practice out into the world? You know, here there's a very supportive environment. Everybody's doing the same thing, more or less. Of uh, course, you never quite know what people are doing. <laughs> but, you know, out in the world, though, it's really, there's not a lot of support. You yeah. people are not going around repeating phrases of loving-kindness all day. So how do we actually integrate it? I think there are two important principles to keep in mind. The first is that the same effort, the same kind of right effort that's needed on retreat, is needed outside of retreat. But this is usually not how we imagine it. I know that there's often the feeling, well, we'll come and do our work on retreat, we'll really put energy and be persevering, and then somehow as the reward of having done that, we can go back into our lives and just coast and hope (laughs) hope it follows us. (coughs) I think that's not a helpful way to look at it, because it doesn't work. (laughs) In some way, you could think of retreat time as time of learning how to practice right effort. Now, we learn about how to make correct effort on the spiritual path, so that when we leave, we can continue it, not that we stop it. The Buddha said very explicitly When we practice, wisdom and compassion and love become stronger. When we don't practice, they become weaker. So it's not like it's something we get and then we have as a possession. It's a dynamic process. When it's practiced, it continues to get stronger. When it's not practiced, it continues to get weaker. So we need to really internalize this understanding because it becomes then an inspiration to really keep the practice going. So how do we make effort in the world? What's the nature of our practice? Obviously, it's not going to be in the same form as it is here. How do we make our life our practice? The Buddha addressed this very clearly. You know, that's what's, to me, so amazing about the teachings. It's so direct and so clear and so straightforward. He talked about three areas of training, that this is what the spiritual path consists of, these three areas of training. The first is a training in morality, it's really the training in right action, where we pay careful attention to the kinds of actions we take in the world. With the reference point, are these actions wholesome or are they unwholesome? Are they skillful or are they unskillful? Are they leading to happiness? Are they leading to more suffering? We can examine this or investigate this in several different ways. We can take a look at our actions in terms of how they affect us in the moment. You know, when we're angry, what is the effect on us? When we're loving, what is the effect on us? So we're really noticing, we're watching. You now when we're engaged in various activities, how is that influencing the quality of our minds? It's not complicated. We just have to look. You know, we have to be awake enough, aware enough, interested enough, not simply to be living on automatic, but really watching. As we're engaged in the various activities we are, you know, in work, in relationships, in all the busyness of our lives, as we go through the day, we're paying attention to the quality of our minds. So we see, we see for ourselves, yes, this is a good thing to be doing. This is not a good thing to be doing. Or maybe we're doing a good thing in not a very good way. I mean, a very simple example of that, you know, we could be engaged, engaged in a basically wholesome activity, but maybe we're kind of in a rush, you know, kind of we're rushing through it, and so we're getting tight, even though the activity itself might be worthwhile. That's just one tiny example. We need to pay attention. So one way is to notice how our actions affect ourselves. Another way is to notice how our actions affect other people. And really to refine our sensitivity to the effect our energy has and our use of energy. Because sometimes we may not be intending to be hurtful or harmful, but out of delusion in the mind, out of just not paying attention, we might be. So it's a, it's a very beautiful practice to, you know, as we go through our life, to really pay attention to the effect of our actions, of our energy, of our movements, the effect that has on the people around us. So we look at how our actions affect ourselves. We pay attention to how they affect other people. We also look at the long range consequences of our actions. And this is the whole understanding of the law of karma, you know, which is so essential to dharma practice, dharma understanding. It's basic teaching of the Buddha. He called the law of karma the light of the world because it illuminates that which leads to suffering and that which leads to happiness. It's the understanding that our actions have consequences. They're not just happening in the moment and then disappearing. It's like dropping a stone in water. And we drop the stone and it ripples out. The key to examining the karmic consequences of our actions Really taking responsibility in that way is learning to look at carefully and honestly our motivations. Because karma unfolds according to the motivation, not according to the action. Now, in one Tibetan teaching it says everything rests on the tip of motivation. And it's a beautiful expression. It's like everything comes down to that point. What is the motive behind our actions, behind our speech, behind what we're doing in the world? And it's very subtle. Now, because often we have a lot of mixed motives. A big part of spiritual awakening, spiritual path, is just to look very honestly, OK, what, why am I doing this? Uh, Is it out of greed? Is it out of fear? Is it out of love? Is it out of compassion? Is it out of understanding? Is it out of boredom? Now, when we bring this kind of investigation to our lives, it's easy to see how our, our whole life becomes the path. It's not a question of just coming to retreat. It's about how we're living. very helpful reference point for looking at our motivation, which is very subtle. Now We really need help in order to look at it, because we often can't exactly see what it is. But just as a starting place in that is the appreciation and the refinement of the five precepts. Now, that really gives us kind of a just a basic level reference point for whether our actions are motivated by wholesome or unwholesome forces. And just as a reminder, I'm sure you're familiar with them and not killing. And really pay attention to times, you know, when we might be motivated, you know, to SWAT the mosquito or the bug or whatever. And just if we're aware of that precept, okay, we stop. Is there another way? Not stealing, but really looking at that in a larger context, um, sort of wise use of resources, not committing sexual misconduct. No, know, on retreat, it's easy because the precept is interpreted as no sexual activity at all. But out in the world, you know, this is a big part of many people's lives. Uh, intimate sexual relationships. <coughs> as you all know, this is a very powerful energy. You know, and it really drives us a lot in our lives at different times. We need to be very careful with it so that... We use that energy in a loving way, in a caring way, not in a way that's harmful either to ourselves or others. In the throes of passion, people can get in a lot of trouble, (laughs) you know, because it's such a strong force. That often we rationalize our behavior, behavior that might be quite harmful, you know, to ourselves, to others it might involve us in dishonesty, in deception, in exploitation. So it's just to understand that this is also a part of our spiritual practice. It's not outside of it. If we really look at that and use the precept. not killing, not stealing, not getting involved in sexual misconduct, not lying. There's a lot around speech. I mean, it's a huge area. It's a huge, in terms of bringing our attention to it, in looking at our motivations. You know, in the course of our daily lives, we talk a lot. That's that's the main vehicle of our communication with one another. But I think very few people really pay attention consciously to the quality of their speech. It's mostly we go on habit. How many times is there actually a space between the thought in the mind and what comes out of the mouth? (laughs) It would be good to create a little space there. Because not everything that comes into the mind is worth vocalizing. <laughs> I mean, on, on the most sort of basic level, you know, we, we refrain from basically dishonest speech, saying things which aren't true. And that has a lot of refinement. You know, we could think, oh, I don't lie. We probably all do. You know, we exaggerate, we try to protect somebody, we, in a million different ways, we might be actually shading the simplicity of what is true. So it's a very powerful exercise, you know, to be committed not to lying, not, not to saying what isn't true. It also doesn't mean that we go around telling everybody the truth of what we think about them. You know, that's an extreme on the other side. The Buddha gave a very helpful guideline for right speech. He said, say that which is true and that which is useful. Because Something might be true and not useful in the moment because somebody is not in the space to hear it or it's not the right circumstances. So it's two really simple things. Is it true? And is it useful? I have noticed so many times in my life just being in a social situation, just hanging out with friends or in a group, and I can see impulses coming up in my mind to say something. (coughs) Often totally useless. Yeah. You know, it's just there is no need to say it whatsoever. It has no benefit to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and when I can see that and just see that impulse and let it go, just let it come and go. The mind feels much more peaceful. You know, it's not continually pumping out everything within you. We're just kind of resting in that space. These thoughts or impulses may come, but there's enough awareness. Yeah. I don't need to say that. And then we really kind of rest in an inequality of inner peace. Watch how often speech involves speaking about other people. You know, that was another great teaching for me, to notice that. that the majority of my speech was about other people. And to try to stop doing that so much. It has enormous consequences, because most of our speech about other people is in one way or another a judgment. Not necessarily bad. I mean, it could be good, it could be It could be bad, but a lot of it is some kind of judgment of them. As we quiet that down, as we don't give voice to it so much, what I found is that my mind actually became a lot less judgmental. Because I wasn't, I wasn't feeding it. And as I became less judgmental of other people, and even happier result, I became a lot less judgmental of myself. That was a relief. (laughs) And it all, it all was being fed by speech which I hadn't been attending to. So it's, it's really a very powerful area of our life. We have ample opportunity to practice this. No. Ajahn Sumedho, who's this wonderful American monk who trained in Thailand under Ajahn Shah, is now the abbot of several monasteries in England. He said something which is counter, countercultural. <laughs> it's counter the counterculture. <laughs> and he said, what we need to do, it's not to follow the heart, it's to train the heart. Mm. So the counterculture philosophy, follow your heart. And there's obviously something in that that it was worth understanding, but it's not complete really. Because there's a lot that's in our heart that is not worth following. <laughs> you know and you've probably seen it very clearly. So it's not just a matter of well follow your heart, it's really training the heart as we've been doing you know for this past week You know in the Buddhist uh, terminology in, in Pali language, this area of training, just of right action of, of moral conduct, ethical conduct, is called sila. That's the Pali word. Uh, it is the absolutely necessary foundation. It's also the source of tremendous happiness in our lives, tremendous joy, because when we're well-established in sila, which is basically non-harming, to non-harming ourselves, non-harming others, what happens is that our mind is free of remorse. We don't have remorse about our actions because we're taking care of our actions. When the mind is free of remorse, it's happy. When it's happy, it concentrates easily. When it concentrates easily, wisdom develops. It's really a beautiful unfolding from some very basic, simple principles. And it's very tied into the practice of metta, because sila is both the nurturance and the expression of loving kindness. And when we're not harming ourselves and not harming others, the motive for that is because we care, this friendly feeling. So the more we refine, the more we pay attention to our actions in this this regard, the more we Practice sila, refine it. The meta becomes stronger. As the meta becomes stronger, it becomes more natural to live in this way. Now the dharma is so beautiful because it's like everything feeds into everything else, and we can really begin to be leading our life with this kind of integration. You know, it's dharma practice is not. It's not a hobby, you know, that we do occasionally. It's really how we're living our life. Okay, so this is the first area of training, and I really encourage you to reflect about this and to refine the understanding. You know, it's easy to think, oh yeah, I'm basically a good person, I don't cause harm. And in a general way, I think that's probably true, but there are levels of refinement which come from a close attention. The second field of training is called samadhi, which means the development of concentration. It's really the meditative disciplines. And this gets into some very practical suggestions about how do you keep your meditation practice going in the world. You know, and you've heard this, I'm sure, a zillion times. This will be the zillionth in one. (laughs) It's really essential to have a regular practice, to have a regular sitting practice. Just to have a time a day where we just sit down and are quiet. You know, kind of... Just on the level of cooling out. You know, letting... The mind settle, and to do that regularly, it's essential. It's sort of like bathing. You know, what would happen if you didn't take a shower for two months <laughs> 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 or a week? You <laughs> know, you start to feel really full. Well, the sitting practice is like a, its just like an inner bath. One of the important things to remember is: don't judge the quality of your sitting. It's worth doing no matter what it feels like. Because sometimes you'll sit and your mind will be all over the place. And sometimes you'll sit and it'll be nice and calm and clear. Just keep doing it anyway. The more you can sit, the better. You know, if you can sit twice a day, you can sit three times a day. But at least try to establish a regular practice. I guess one word of advice in this, don't think it's going to be easy. (laughs) I mean, after a retreat, it seems to sit once a day is nothing. For some reason, it's incredibly difficult in the busyness of our lives to keep that discipline. So if you know that it's going to be difficult, you'll give it the appropriate energy. If you think it's just going to be easy then you're not gonna give it the appropriate energy and it'll fall away quickly. It takes discipline, it takes an effort to do it. Carve out the time. Really what inspires me I think the most about the power of awareness is it gives us the freedom to make choices. If we're not aware, then we're just acting out all our habit patterns. And there's no choice. It's like we're sleepwalking. We're in a dream. Whatever our actions might be. When we bring awareness to them, that awareness gives us the space to make a choice. Do I want to do this or do I want to do that? I think the Dharma practice becomes very alive in our lives when we exercise this power of choice. And when we really start to fashion our lives, rather than simply play out habit patterns. So there's a great joy in that. It's like we take back the power in our life and realize we can make choices. You can work with meditation practice now in a couple of different ways. You might want to just continue with the metta for a while. After one of my times of doing it intensively in Burma, I spent the whole next year basically just doing metta. Every time I sat in my daily practice, that's what I would be cultivating. Um, And it was wonderful. And it really helped strengthen and make it a very strong part of my practice. So it's one way to do it. And really, really devote yourself exclusively to this practice for a while. Another way, especially for those of you who have experience in Vipassana also, they combine beautifully. You know, so you could spend the first half of the sitting doing metta and then going into Vipassana. I think you'll notice a difference in the quality of the inside practice from doing the metta. Because first, it's just a way of getting the mind focused and concentrated, and it also softens. It makes it more gentle, so that when we open up to a general mindfulness, we're much more accepting. We're less judgmental. We've created that inner field of loving-kindness, which makes it easier to do vipassana. As I mentioned this morning, It's wonderful to be carrying the metta just in the course of the day, walking down the street, driving your car. I have a tendency, I I, I like to drive fast. On these roads, when there's nobody on the road, it's great. But if you get stuck behind a slow driver, there's not that many places to pass. So I'm not infrequently... Uh, up against that feeling of impatience. <laughs> now, why can't they, why can't they get on with it? You know, dawdling along at 40 miles an hour. It's a wonderful time to do metta. Right there is the choice. You know, I can either be there in my impatience, kind of wanting them to get on with it, or I can kind of sit back and relax. Okay. Be happy. Be happy. <laughs> And of course, as I settle more into the meta rather than the impatience, I feel a lot happier. It's probably a lot safer also. <laughs> just find the opportunities in the day. you know, when you're feeling impatient or irritated, but when you're not, when you're simply just going along, <coughs> may everyone in this room be happy, be healthy. May everyone on this street be happy, be healthy. It's probably better to say it to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Although that's, a, that's an interesting commentary. In itself. Okay, there's the, there's the training in sila. There's the training, the, the regularity, the discipline of a regular sitting practice. You know, where we're really cultivating the meditative disciplines. And the third training... Is that in wisdom? And the wisdom comes out of the other two. Now, in Pali, it's called sila, samadhi, panya. Panya is the word for wisdom. These are like the three foundations of Buddha Dharma. Wisdom emerges both from our sitting practice and also from a wise attention in our daily lives. It's not limited to when we're sitting. Wisdom comes when we pay attention. It's so obvious, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) if we want to understand something, we need to be looking. We need to be mindful. We need to be paying attention. There are different uh, specific things we could highlight. One is pay attention really in times of difficulty you're going along going along everything's fine and then something happens and there's a glitch right? maybe it's in a interpersonal communication maybe it's in work maybe it's getting behind a slow driver whatever you know whatever particular incident kind of tightens us the training in wisdom is not simply kind of getting lost in that. But let the difficulty, let the struggle, let the suffering be a feedback. This is the time to look. What's happening now? Where am I getting caught? How am I getting lost? Is there something I'm afraid of? Can I open? Can I be accepting? It really changes the quality of our life when we use times of suffering in the service of our liberation rather than simply to lead to more suffering. you know, It's a basic switch in how we live. In some way, I think we learn the most. When we bring awareness to it, I think we, we learn the most from times of suffering. Because right there, we're at our edge. You know, we're at our edge in terms of what we're willing to be with, what we're willing to open to. Dalai Lama talks a lot. I mean, he he's, and again, this is in the context also of metta and compassion. How one's enemies teaches one's patience. You know, that in some way, one's enemies are one's greatest teachers, and it's really true. If we can keep that perspective, because enemy, whether it's a person or a situation or you know, whatever it is. That's causing us suffering. That is bringing us right there to the, to the point of where we're caught. But we have to look at it in this way. And if we get involved in blaming or self pity or just wallowing in our own suffering, we don't learn anything. So this is, this is a real opportunity for us to train in wisdom and insight. One other thing that I have found tremendously important, I mean, deeply profound in terms of understanding is the recollection, the immediacy of understanding the impermanence of things. You know, we, we all know it intellectually. We know that things are changing. But to actually bring that understanding alive in the way we're being with things, it's all just disappearing. Where did this week go? You know, where did the events of your life before the week go? And it's, it's continuously like that. It's not just this week. <laughs> It's like every moment, it's it's like water over a waterfall. It just keeps... When we really pay attention to that, and this doesn't take a lot to see. (laughs) It's the most salient characteristic of all our experience, but somehow we get so caught up in the content, so caught up in the drama of our lives, that we just don't pay attention to it. And so we get caught, and we get attached, and we get full of aversion and all the consequences. This seeing, reflection, calling to mind, really being with, just the momentariness of everything creates a tremendous spaciousness in our lives. Because then we're not grasping at things, we're not clinging, we're not attached, we're not holding on. And on the most fundamental level, to the sense of self. The whole thing is just this process of continuous change of elements of thoughts and feelings and emotions and situations and people and weather and everything. There's nothing really there. And this leads us to the wisdom, the great wisdom of Buddha Dharma, of the essential emptiness of it all. It doesn't make us disengaged. It's not, this is not, you know, we don't withdraw. There's no one to withdraw. <laughs> that itself is just another stuck place. Rather, it's simply becoming one with this flow of continual change and not damming it up, not blocking it you know, with our attachments, with our reactions, with our identifications. Do you see the possibility there just to Relaxing into it, letting it all happen. The more we see the impermanence, moment after moment, day after day, week after week, the more we see that and the more we understand the essential emptiness of it all, the freer we are. So This is the training in wisdom. You now, when we really use our lives for the development of it. It's not something intellectual. It's something that comes from attention. Well, these are the trainings, you know, that you can really carry into your life as you leave. It's not dependent on being at IMS, on being on retreat. This is a tremendous gift that you've given yourselves you know, just the quiet and the stillness and the protected quality to develop some strength of mind, develop the feelings of love and compassion, now it's really to live, you know, in a really aware and mindful way. Thich Nhat Hanh had a wonderful phrase. He said, happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, know, and just, just to connect with that, it is available. Please help yourself to it. So, do you have any questions or comments or last things you'd like to mention? This is little funerary tree that we have still Of course, in mind. Can you describe the difference between emptiness and indifference? Right. Between emptiness and indifference. <coughs> indifference is a quality of withdrawal from experience, and it's characterized by not caring. It's like when we're indifferent to something, we call it apathetic, and in a way it's being closed off. Right? It's a pulling back, closing off. Uh, seeing the emptiness of things, let me just back up a minute, really the the contrast to indifference is equanimity. Because equanimity is there in a very spacious quality of mind. The, the characteristic of equanimity is impartiality. We were not partial to this over that. Well, impartiality is very different than indifference, than not caring. Equanimity or impartiality holds everything. Um, And maybe you got a taste of it, you know, in the course of the retreat, uh, in working with the different categories of benefactor and friend and neutral and uh, enemy. Maybe you touch some place where the mind really was impartial. That one, one person was not more important than another person. That's a, that's a certain quality of equanimity. It holds it all. The question about emptiness really, um, especially in relationship to metta and compassion, There are two aspects of the Dharma that are really essential to understand and integrate. And that is the understanding of the absolute level and the relative level. On the relative level of experience, there are separate individuals, there's beings, there's the language of I and me and self and you. And that's all the relative world that we live in. And we inhabit that world a lot. So it's important to inhabit it skillfully. On another level, we understand the emptiness of it all. Emptiness means there's nothing substantial there. It's like a rainbow. You know, the rainbow is a beautiful appearance, (laughs) but there's nothing really there that you can touch. It's an appearance depending on certain conditions coming together. There's no such thing as a rainbow. There's, the rainbow doesn't exist as a self-existent phenomenon. Right? Rather, it's an appear- certain conditions come together and there's an appearance of something. What we call self is exactly the same thing. Certain conditions come together and there's an appearance of Joseph or Jean, or <laughs> each one of us. Right? So this is the absolute understanding. that there is nothing self-existing, that everything is simply the appearance due to conditions which are continuously changing. When we can bring the wisdom of the absolute, of understanding the basic emptiness, selflessness, insubstantiality, impermanence of it all, into the relative level, then we move very freely in it. So we engage, we're very engaged with people in the world on the relative level, but because of that underlying wisdom, we're not sticking. Because there's no one to stick, if we really have that understanding. So that's how it all kind of blends together. And it's important to have both. Sometimes people get attached to the emptiness. And that really just becomes another kind of attachment that's not a true emptiness. But it's like, oh, nobody's there, nothing is important. That's going more to the indifferent side. Other people are totally immersed in the relative without any understanding at all of the emptiness. And so they're really caught in that way. Our practice is to bring both together. And that's one of the beautiful things about the balance between metta and vipassana. Metta, compassion, mudita, (coughs) all of these uh, are working and purifying the relative level. We're working with the concept of beings. And then through vipassana, we see the emptiness of it all. So the two, these two practices really help us join, integrate. Actually, two people that I was doing work for, and I just get
0: a little resistance to the
1: doctor. I don't know why they love me. I don't know why, but I just get tied around and pushed them away. Well, I would look at what your. Uh, Responses to the tightness. So leave them aside for a moment. Right? If there's a situation, you get tight. What are you doing with that tightness? Do you have a spacious feeling around the tightness? Or is there kind of, I don't like this. Right? If there's that, I don't like this. That, I don't like this, becomes... The condition for pushing them away because they are part of the conditions for the tightness to arise. If you can, if you can get okay, relax behind the feeling of tightness. Okay. These people around, you're feeling tight. You're going to breathe into it. Oh, this is okay. I can allow this feeling of tightness. Then you're not ricocheting against those people anymore because you're accepting of the tightness and the degree to which we can relax behind the tightness you'll see that it's another changing condition and that actually what keeps it tight is our dislike of it I mean it's like that story I told of the guy on the plane you know it's how we are relating to unpleasant situations that's that's the key place there I wouldn't Particularly, or I don't think there's a particular need to kind of psychoanalyze. Well, why is it that you get tight around these people? And I mean, it could be interesting, but I think there's a much quicker, more fundamental way. Just tightness. How are you with that? Can you be okay with that feeling, feel? I mean, it's, it's very simple. Bigger. I'm to get more this more yeah. Well, I would, when you say you're with it, what's the quality of being with it? Is it with it in a bargaining way? I and mean, it gets very subtle. Of, of, there are many ways that we could be with it that contain aversion towards it. And we could be with it, not liking it. We could be with it, bargaining with it. We could be with it, stoically enduring it. None of that is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really bringing that quality of metta. You know, this is okay. You're really loving it. Right. When you have that relationship to it, it's not a problem. And therefore those people are not a problem. Yeah, and I think that really begins or helps to decondition the response to those people. Its really made I mean I, we all have that situation of being around people who are difficult for us, and we just get <laughs> like that. And usually we we blame it on them. <laughs> you know if only they were different, I wouldn't feel this way. That's completely the opposite of what we need to be doing. It's just, can we take a deep breath and allow the discomfort? And as we do that, we find that it gets a lot less uncomfortable. And it's great training. You know, it, it, it's analogous interpersonally to learning how to be with a pain in the knee. I mean, it's the same thing. It's being with a pain in the neck. <laughs> you know? And you know from your experience there's, there's a whole training and a transformation of how we are with the pain in the knee. You know, at first it's tight and we don't like and we hate and we move and all of that. But over time, it's fine. It's not a problem at all. It's just that discomfort. That It's in that context that the Dalai Lama was, you know, my friend, the enemy. Mm-hmm. So, because they're really showing us where we're caught.
0: Good luck. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, and also be patient with yourself. So, you know, this is, is a process. So don't be judgmental of yourself. You know, if you don't do it perfectly right away. It's a practice. But When I can't feel that salt right away, and I work out, I can't do it, still hard, and it does help me, and does help me to think. Uh, well, what is it, and, and I do, and uh, so it's sort kind of the shadow, now, I do it. always acquire it, you know, it is every time, I don't follow mm-hmm. it, I can't stand myself. Mm-hmm. I don't like do it, right. so then I start trying to stop them myself, so, you mean, no, that, that I think is really helpful. I think the recognition of what the feeling is can be tremendously helpful by, by psychoanalyzing. And I, I think there's a value for that too. I'm not, I don't want to undervalue. It. I think that in its own context, it can be very helpful. Uh-huh. I think that uh, if we're unable to come to a place of acceptance, of whatever it is, even after we really recognize it. Yeah, we see this is fear or this is whatever, you know, and the conditioning is so tight and complex around it, it could be very helpful to have somebody guide us through sort of the knots, you know, and how they were created and and all the different techniques of therapy. If we are able to come to an acceptance, And part of that acceptance is a clear recognition that this is fear, this is sorrow, this is grief, this is sadness, this is rage, this is whatever. The recognition actually is a, in some way, it's a prerequisite for acceptance. And we need to know what it is in order to be able to accept it. But if we're able to do that, then I think we don't particularly have to understand all the history behind it. Because we're able just to be with it, you know, in a non-identified way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and also I, you know, quite a few years ago I was, I was doing Jungian therapy. Uh, and it was really helpful. You know, and it, I didn't feel a conflict in any way. It really was just mutually supportive. Well in the last uh looking at categories I I just kinda of happened I mean, in the last I just just cannot uh, find I had the category of people who um, I may mean, have found um, there people who have uh, found paint I mean, it was very helpful to me. So I mean as long as it's Sure. As long as it feels good and is helpful. (laughs) It may feel helpful and not be helpful. (laughs) It was a little bit of a joke, but there there was a grain of truth in it. In the sense that sometimes what feels good in the moment is not necessarily helpful. You know, there are a lot of things that we do. You know the the third piece of chocolate cake feels great yeah. <laughs> in the moment of eating it, and then afterwards, <laughs> one is really sick. So it's just to bring kind of wisdom. But in the example you used, I think it really does seem helpful. Yeah, and, and um yeah, be creative and expansive in the meta practice. Okay, list two. <laughs> That I came up with a long time ago,
0: and I'm kind of confused on If I accept um, the truth about impermanence, then how do I come and make a commitment to a person in a relationship? They seem
1: sort of. No, it's not at all. Well, it, help, I, me. help me. I think there's a very simple analogy. No. It's the same way you make a commitment to your spiritual practice, knowing that from day to day, sitting to sitting, hour to hour, there'll be enormous changes. But because you value the path of practice, right? that's the basis of the commitment. Not that it's going to always be the same way. It's not. It's (laughs) continually changing. But you value the path of the practice, so that's your commitment. In exactly the same way in a relationship, you can value a path of relationship, you know, and that's the basis of the commitment. Within that is the understanding that it doesn't stay the same. And to the degree that you think it does, it's a setup for suffering, you know, as we all know. So I think it's simple. someone what that response scope of response best comes really I know there so what do I understanding Well I think there are two things. I think one is the really paying attention if there was a degree of delusion in the mind or not not paying attention out of which the action came, even if it was not the intention to hurt, right? just the fact that a hurtful action may have happened because we weren't really paying attention. So to learn from that. In terms of the other person, I think it's often just a simple, I'm sorry if that was hurtful, that wasn't my intention. It's <laughs> just really simple. And, and that often can save, instead of something then festering and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, just in the moment of acknowledging, you know, that the person was hurt in some way and that you're sorry that it was hurtful. Even, even though it wasn't your intention to do that. Is that clear? It's just a very straightforward. I think we can be very straightforward. I'm amazed at how often that can bring... I've seen it myself many times when I make that gesture. Even if I think that I've done something right, that somebody else seemed hurt by just to say, well, I'm sorry you feel hurt. It's amazing how it brings people together instead of staying polarized. Why don't we just do like two minutes of meta for all? <laughs> Sure, (laughs) I'll get in receptive mode.